following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. I imagine most of us adults here today can think back through our lives, the times that we have said the right thing in the wrong way, or the right thing at the wrong time. As I look back over 50 years of ministry, I'm appalled at the numbers of times that I have said the right thing at the wrong time or the right thing in the wrong way. We're also guilty of jumping to conclusions, and you parents will understand this. You're, two of your children are into a, a tussle, and you come into the room, and you assume that the, the one who's the troublemaker is the one who should be corrected, and you begin to correct her, only to find out that she's not the troublemaker. The other child was. You jump to conclusions. We do this, uh, and we all are guilty of it. But uh, when we come to a higher level, of speaking to our own consciences and speaking to others the truth of God's Word, we also can be guilty of doing this, and that's the warning that is before us this morning here in this opening speech by Eliphaz. In chapter 3, we saw Job's response to his grievous trials, pain, sorrow, incurable disease, loss of all things. And we noted that he spoke over the top, that he, he said foolish things uh, through the first two-thirds of the third chapter. And then he begins to get a hold of himself. He, he begins faith. There's a little glimmer there, and you're going to see this throughout the book of Job. And he expresses lament. He, it's an important question. Why, when God's done all this, he's completed his purposes, why would Job still live? And we've all asked that question as well as we looked at the the situation in the lives of other people. Well, when Job finishes, now Eliphaz begins a series of dialogues that will take place between Job's three counselors and Job himself. And this is the first of the many. Now, perhaps as you've read the book of Job, uh, and as you will hear it preached, you wonder what profit is there in these speeches? for which God rebukes them at the end of the book. Well, let me tell you four ways to uh, look at the remarks of Eliphaz and his two friends. In the first place, you need to know they say a lot of things that are accurate and true. How do I know that? Because these things are repeated, uh, particularly in the wisdom literature of which Job is a part, and some of them are actually quoted in both Testaments. But second... They make a lot of wrong applications of the truth with respect to how they think and uh, uh, to practice. In fact, they really are the first health, wealth, and prosperity theologians. And, and we'll see that as we unpack their arguments, and that leads them to wrong conclusions based upon truth, but wrong conclusions. So third then, as we read Job and as we hear Job preach and we try to work out for ourselves, we must learn to read with discernment, as we should all of Scripture, comparing Scripture with Scripture. And so that which is good, don't back off from it because it was said by these men. The Holy Spirit put it here for us. That which is chaff, 
then avoid it in your life, as we will see this morning by God's grace in this sermon. And then, finally, work out the good things in your own thinking and practice. So we begin now working our way through these speeches of Job and his friends. And as we begin with Eliphaz's speech, I want you to be aware of the danger of wrongly applying true principles. I want you aware of the danger of wrongly applying true principles. I'll unpack the 11 verses under two headings, the accusation and then the proof or grounds of the accusation. Well, first then, the accusation in verses 1 through 6, then Eliphaz, the Temanite, answered, If one ventures a word with you, will you become impatient? But who can refrain from speaking? Behold, you have admonished many. You've strengthened weak hands. Your words have helped the tottering to stand. And you've strengthened feeble knees. But now it's come to you. And you are impatient. It touches you, and you're dismayed. It's not your fear of God, your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope. Eliphaz the Temanite was, as we've seen earlier, the, uh, a descendant of Esau. He would have been the oldest, thus the wisest, of the free friends. Um, Job, he actually says to Job that he was a friend of Job's father. We also believe that Eliphaz and the two others were godly men, for it's godly men that would have associated with Job and have come at this sacrifice now to speak to him. And as I say, it's godly men. They know a lot of truth about God. As Eliphaz begins with Job, he also begins somewhat gently and tenderly. He recognizes the, the sorrow of Job. And so he kind of comes in gently. If, if one will we'll just speak a word with you, will you become impatient? So he's pleading for patience with Job. And he's saying he's compelled to speak. Who can refrain from speaking in the midst of this awful uh, affliction, he says, that has come upon Job. Now, he also admits, both pro- probably by way of some compliment, but also as background for what he wants to say, that uh, Job himself has been a very wise counselor. Behold, pay attention, you have admonished many. And we know later from the book that Job was a teacher, a judge in the midst of his people. You've strengthened weak hands as he'll speak to us of how he helped the widow and the orphan and the poor. Your words have helped the tottering to stand, and you've strengthened feeble knees. So he owns that Job has been a wise and godly man, greatly used in his own community. But then notice the adversative. He now begins to lay the foundation for the accusation against Job, but now it's come to you, and you are impatient. It touches you, and you are dismayed. Now, we've recognized that Job did express impatience, as he vented in chapter 3. But look at the insensitivity of Eliphaz, how he has uh, spoken of Job's trial. It, It touches you. Now, we recognize that this was not a a simply passing, touching of God. Aside the suffering of our saviors, we've never read of anything upon a righteous man that is so awfully comprehensive and treacherous and hurtful. 
And so Eliphaz is kind of brushing away, saying, Job, you really, you're speaking over the top. You've, you've been impatient. I mean, this is a mild thing that you have been through. It touches you, and you are dismayed. So he's saying, you who have counseled others, it's time now for you to receive counsel. Eliphaz is saying, I'm the one that's going to give you this counsel. And this lays the background then for the accusation. Now, in your Bible, it's not going to appear to be an accusation. It's not your fear of God, your confidence, and the integrity of your ways, your hope. And as the modern translations translate uh, this verse, uh, they do so as kind of a way that Job should have hope. But this is not the word order of the original. The King James correctly translates this. Is this not your fear, your confidence, your hope, even the integrity of your ways? You see, he is, in a sense, mocking Job. He's now accusing Job of hypocrisy. Job, who's answered others and given them counsel, has expressed his own integrity in this. In fact, now, according to Eliphaz, is guilty of the worst and most heinous of sins, and that is the sin of hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy is a terrible sin. Scripture, in many places, warns against it. It's a terrible sin uh, in those who are leaders, those who say one thing and do something else. And as Eliphaz speaks out against hypocrisy, I would speak to you about hypocrisy. Parents, are you guilty at times of basically, if you don't say it, communicating to your children, don't do as I do, do as I say? It's the grossest form of hypocrisy. It's one of the ways that we provoke our children uh, to wrath. Teachers in the church. Some of us here are teachers in the church. Others preparing to be teachers in the church. Uh, and others, Lord willing, will become office bearers in the church. You see the danger of uh, living one way and teaching another way. It's a gross sin. It's an awful affront against God and against those around us. And may the Holy Spirit, if you are guilty of this hypocrisy, even now, convince you of this sin, bring you to repentance because of this sin, cause you to cast yourself on Christ for pardon, but also for grace to cease the hypocrisy. So the accusation against Job is that though he taught others, he was not listening to what he had to say. He'd lost his integrity, implied he was being punished because he was a sinner. That is the indictment of Eliphaz and his two friends carried out now through the rest of the book. Well, in verses 7 through 11, Eliphaz now enforces this accusation uh, with three arguments from Job's condition. That's the basis of the arguments. Not from what they know about Job, but three arguments from Job's condition. In fact, it will get so bad as we work through the book, they'll start inventing sins ascribing them to Job. But now they just uh, ascribe that he must be guilty because of what's happening to him. Verses 7 to 11. Remember now, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? According to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. By the breath of God they perish. 
by the blast of his anger, they come to an end. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. Now, in verse 7, the first proof that Job uh, is a hypocrite is that he is suffering. Remember, he says to Job. In other words, Job, this is something that you know well. You are, are a teacher of others. Remember, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright destroyed? Now, that is a true biblical principle. It's put positively by the psalmist in Psalm 37, 25. I've been young, now I'm old, yet I've not seen the righteous forsaken, or his descendants begging bread. It is certainly true that um, those who are not innocent are going to perish. They're going to suffer God's hand and judgment. They're eventually going to go to the end of all destruction. But as Eliphaz paints with this broad brush, then the Spirit wants you to understand how to interpret these kind of teachings, particularly, say, in the book of Proverbs. They are not prescriptive. They're general statements of how God generally operates and enables us to praise God when they come true in our lives and recognize it's only come from Him. But it doesn't mean this is always how God is going to operate. We know that as we compare Scripture with Scripture. Eliphaz should have known that. He knew the history of the church up to his time. He would have known, for example, uh, that uh, Cain murdered Abel. And there the innocent was destroyed by uh, the wicked. And, and so he's sweeping how with this broad brush, painting with this broad brush, and then wrongly applying the principle that is stated in Scripture. A true principle that the wicked shall be destroyed. Also in this, he is assuming that Job's end is destruction under the hand of God's wrath. Unless Job repents, he shall be destroyed. Now we know that Job wasn't destroyed, but in this, and this is why I read Matthew, or why we read Matthew 27, uh, you see how Job here is a type of Christ, even as his enemies accuse him of wickedness, say that he's going to be destroyed, as the Savior is mocked by the soldiers, as he hangs on the cross, and, and mocked as a guilty man. He said he was the Son of God, but God has not stepped forth to deliver him. He could say he could rebuild the temple, but uh, he can't come down from the cross. He can't even save himself. And they mock him because they think he's going to be destroyed. He was not destroyed. He bore the brunt of God's wrath for the sins of his people. He endured it. But as we said, he cried out, it is finished. And though he had to die for the last punishment of sin, he had to sanctify our grave for us. He came forth victorious. His enemies were wrong. And here we see Eliphaz is wrong and Job becomes picture of our Savior himself. Now, the second accusation is also very easy to fall into, and that is in verse 8, you reap what you sow. According to what I've seen, this says, Job, you remember what you know this. Now, let me remind you, I'm, I'm older than you. According to what I've seen, those who plow iniquity and those who sow trouble harvest it. And that is a very sound biblical principle. For example, Paul will write in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, Do not be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever one sows, this he will also reap. 
The one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. It's true. You boys and girls need to understand this is very true. It's true for covenant children. What you sow is what you will reap. If you lie, you're going to reap problems and destruction. If you become an angry person, you're going to reap great problems. If you refuse to take hold of Christ and the covenant as he's offered to you, you shall then suffer actually the damnation of God as a covenant breaker. You sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. It's a principle throughout Scripture. But because of that principle, does that mean that everyone who is reaping punishment as sown iniquity. See, here's Eliphaz's problem. I want to give you a lesson in logic. It's a hypothetical syllogism. If A, then B. So if your car is out of gas, it will not run, right? But you can violate that principle by affirming that consequence. So the antecedent, the if clause, then the consequence. So if your car is out of gas, it will not run. So if you simply say the car will not run, therefore it is out of gas, is that necessarily true? It might be full of gas. So here is the problem. If a man suffers, he must be wicked. Now that's true. So to wickedness you will reap punishment and affliction. But then he affirms it. Job is suffering punishment and affliction, therefore Job must be wicked. So you see how you cannot reverse the principle. There are other reasons, as we well know from Scripture, that people suffer uh, under God's hand as chastening. We'll come back to that. But that's the problem now of Eliphaz, assuming that uh, whoever suffers must be wicked. Now, his third grounds is actually even more ferocious. Verses 9 through 11. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they come to an end. Talking now about the wicked. The roaring of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps of the lioness are scattered. So once again, he, he says something that's quite true. Those who will remain in wickedness are going to perish under the breath of God's wrath. The blast of his anger will bring them to an end. It'll be like a, a blasting furnace coming uh, to destroy them. And uh, perhaps in this life, but certainly for all eternity. That's a principle, that, again, that is repeated throughout Scripture. Isaiah 11:4. but with the righteousness, with the righteous, he shall judge the poor. And with righteousness, he'll judge the poor. Decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. In 3033, for a burning place has been prepared. Indeed, for the king is made ready. It's a pyre, a funeral pyre, made deep and wide with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, stream of sulfur, kindles it. Or Paul in 2 Thessalonians 2.8 uses this language with respect to the man of lawlessness. Then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth. I think about that awful description in Revelation 19 of our Savior. Then I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. The Savior is mounted on the white horse. In righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. 
He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword which, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a mighty rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. It is a fearful thing. Fall into the hands of our God, who is a consuming fire. And what Eliphaz says here is absolutely true, dear friends. All who persist in sin shall not only suffer in this life, but shall enter into this eternal destruction that is pictured here in these passages of Scripture. And that destruction comes from the power of God. Notice then the allusion to the lions. In Hebrew, there are five words for lion. All of them are used here. The first two speak of the power of the lion, the roaring and, and the voice. But notice the teeth of the young lions are broken. The lion perishes for lack of prey, and the whelps, the cubs, the lioness are scattered. He says to think of the most powerful animal. That powerful animal is under God's judgment. This burning wrath of God is more powerful than all of created power. It is going to destroy and that's absolutely true. It's a truth that I would want all of you this morning to think about. But particularly, if in your conscience you do not know that you're trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that Eliphaz says here is true about you. If you were to die now in this condition, you understand that you die under this fierce blast furnace of God's holy wrath and anger, regardless of how strong you think you are how much you vaunt yourself in the presence of God. He'll destroy you. He might leave you alone. You might die a, a healthy and prosperous person. But believe me, if you die outside the Lord Jesus Christ, this is just a bare description of what awaits you. So I urge you, I urge you boys and girls who are in covenant with God, not to take for granted the mercies of God. He's covered you now. He's put you in the ark. He's expressed to you his love. But he's called on you boys and girls to make covenant with him. And if you refuse to make covenant with him, you understand then that you will die outside the covenant. And you'll be under this wrath of God. So now, in the days of youth, remember your creator. Remember the covenant he's made with you and your parents. Take cold of the Lord Jesus Christ. But from that wrath of God, we may not then reason that those who suffer affliction in this life are necessarily under God's wrath. For God has many other reasons for which he afflicts his people, and we need to be aware of that, and not simply jump to that conclusion warned against in James to condemn others to hell, to God's judgment because of the punishment or the chastening that we see coming on them. And so Eliphaz errs in the very beginning. He jumps to a conclusion of hypocrisy in the life of Job. Yes, Job expressed himself wrongly. He sinned in doing so, but he did not deny God, did he? And in his conscience, as part of his struggle, the rest of the book, he knows 
that he is, has been, though a sinner, pardoned by God. He's blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And so we must be careful. We must be careful in wrongly applying true principles. Eliphaz was not careful. He jumped from consequences in the life of Job to causes that were not true. We can do that, you know. Not just in less serious ways with our children, or even more seriously speaking the wrong word in the wrong way at the wrong time. In fact, you can do it with your own conscience. I want to bring you a word of comfort. Because Satan would have you when you are in the midst of awful suffering. Perhaps it's even dark depression and our physical pain or our terrible uh, conflicts in your life. And Satan would have you think that as you go through that valley of the shadow of death, that it's because God is punishing you for sin. He'll seek to shaken your assurance. Now, when we do go into affliction, it's proper, as James teaches us, to examine ourselves. And if you find a sin there or a pattern of your life that's the cause of that affliction, if you confess it, he promises that he forgives you. But remember, there's other ways, other causes that God has as he's rearing us as his children, as he's shaping us. As, as with Job, he's making us an example to, to those around us of, of the power of his grace. So that those who uh, would uh, mock us, to slander us for our ill behavior, will have to behold our good behavior. And they would be compelled to honor God. And so don't jump to wrong conclusions concerning yourself. You have doubts and you come to a pastoral counselor. Don't just simply assume, as Satan would want you to assume, that because I'm suffering, I must be wicked. God's ways are far beyond that. Second, remember the gentleness of God. The, the very Savior, who is pictured here in Thessalonians and Revelation as breathing out fire and judgment on his enemies, is also described uh, by Matthew quoting Isaiah, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry out loud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not quench. Until he brings justice to victory, in his name the Gentiles will hope. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 18 that I like the New American Standard, by his gentleness he makes us great. And that hymn attributed to Calvin, I greet thee, whom I sure redeemer art. Thou hast the true and perfect gentleness. No harshness hast thou and no bitterness. Make us taste the sweet grace found in thee. And ever stay in thy sweet unity. Your Savior is gentle. Remember that when you are in your trials and afflictions. He's not come down upon you with an awful hand. And he's not punishing you. No, he's dealing with you. In chastening, not in judgment. When I say he's not punishing you, he's not punishing you in judgment. He's dealing with you, chastening, as the writer of the Hebrews teaches us, as a father chastens his children, and it's gentle. That hand is always restrained, isn't it? As the psalmist says, that uh, 
as a father pities his children. So God has compassion. He knows that we are but dust. Don't you marvel at his patience and his gentleness? So yes, even as we would think about his judgment on the wicked, we don't put ourselves in that category. We, in Christ, in Christ, dear friends, you're under the gentle Savior. And then let us learn what not to do from what Eliphaz did. Three things. In the first place, you must learn to listen. Listen to the complaint. Listen to the sorrow. Listen to the hurt. Eliphaz, uh, as he sat there for seven days, had begun to construct his indictment against Job. He failed to listen, you see. He jumped to conclusions. He, he heard this tempestuous speech in response, and it simply affirmed what he'd already determined about Job. He wasn't listening. You must learn to listen as a counselor, as you're involved in a polemics with another person. Be sure that you can state back the cause of their sorrow and grief or, or the reasons for what they believe or say before you answer. He didn't listen. Second, Eliphaz uh, was insensitive. We saw that, even in the way he passed over Job. Uh, trials, and as he begins to pound on him, here's this man. Just imagine him in, in this, the, the weakness, the frailty of soul, of body. I mean, basically, Eliphaz is saying to him the same thing. Deny God and die. Curse him and die. He lacked all sympathy. All, and he lacked that gentleness of the Savior. And you must be careful as you would come alongside others, parents with your children. There'll be a time for anger, but may it be a gentle anger. We'd be gentle with our children, gentle with our spouses, particularly men, gentle with your wives, gentle as office bearers in the church, gentle when we need to come alongside someone else and give them that admonition, gentle even if we had to exercise church discipline. Let us learn that gentleness of God. And then let us be very careful not to jump to conclusions. We must know the right principles. We must believe everything that Eliphaz said. But let us not be then those who will say, quickly apply that to someone else. No, take heed to yourself first. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.